Well, welcome back to SideQuest 010. This is the 10th episode of SideQuest, and today we're going to talk about Nausicaa in the Valley of the Wind, which was made in 1984 and based off a manga, and actually precedes Studio Ghibli's creation, interestingly huh. enough. And so we have Mr. Wesley Shantz back with us. Nice to have you, Wes. Hey, good to be back. And so something I should announce, besides the fact that this is the second podcast that Wes and I have done today, and he sort of has done three because you were also teaching The Hobbit earlier today, um, is that I think this is our 30th episode together ca- collaborating on this on this podcast, uh, Wes. I think we have seven Harry Potter conversations together, 10 of these side quest conversations now, and 13 contemplative conversations. And so wow. made the benchmark. Yeah, that's awesome. That's like... Uh ton of material and like a drop in the bucket compared to all the different stuff we were thinking about uh yeah start i know yeah very very much is and we finished something today and we're getting pretty close to finishing the initial segment of side quests here i think we only have technically one more hayao miyazaki movie to watch after this and it's very different from the ones before the wind rises i think oh wow yeah and then i think we're I, it's about time for us to move on to the next project, which we had been talking a lot about, and which is sort of similar to your 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 uh, original project on Earthbound. And I know you had been thinking about perhaps talking about Final Fantasy VII or something else like yeah. that. Yeah, I think that should be the next uh, next series here. Um, that game is is so f- foundational for a lot of the the approach that I have to. Um, to reading and playing video games and stuff. That was just a really formative experience. So I think that'd be cool to do a, a playthrough and, and talking about different chapters of that. That'd be you awesome. know, I, I think that'd be great too. And something that I recently learned while reading um, A Billion Wicked Thoughts um, by Ogi Ogas and Saigadam is that when humans are developing, when we're young, we imprint at specific times of our development. And so, uh, especially with like, say things like sexual cues, like the things that we look for in other people, We often imprint based on the body types or that which we can see, which are available to us during the time when we imprint. And so when you are young, you, you can be imprinted in a way so that the, the people from the generation before appear to you like the most beautiful people that have ever existed because the characteristics that mark them are the ones that imprinted on you. And so something interesting about that is I wonder if there's an extension if there's a sort of abstract imprinting that happens around adolescence, that the stories mm. that we're told at those times sort of take root and help to shape us specifically because of um, the transitional nature of that time. And sure. so, yeah, because I know I grew up and now, now I, I would say I have a good Christian education, but I didn't at the time I didn't grow up going to church to anything. I've largely learned what I've learned through school and reading um, but at that time, when I was 13, when I was 14, the biggest story in my life was probably Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> um, the story that was most formative, that, that I thought about the most, that I imagined yeah. during my day when I was going through my daily things, the characters that would pop into my head were Cloud and Sephiroth, and it's sort of embarrassing to say, but I don't think I'm in bad company in saying that either. And, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I totally and, agree. Uh, something you could probably you could probably do like some kind of study and and survey people who grew up in that time and and what kinds of 
movies and video games they were really into and what which have which have like remained important to their um you know inner life growing up and i think that would be a really interesting uh like experiment to to just run and see what people say yeah well maybe we can get some fun and we can uh run it ourselves and another idea i'm having as seen as you seem to have this incredible endurance for thinking and podcasting you are of course a teacher so you do this sort of thing professionally and perhaps <laughs> in some ways a podcast is much easier than teaching though in other ways it's uh-huh. sort of because you don't have the actual interaction with a bunch of people. But then on the other hand, you don't have to manage a bunch of people. Mm. Um, maybe we should do like some sort of marathon someday. See, see how long we can go, how many different episodes we can do. See if some people will come along for the ride. Um, that's, so like the fundraiser that Signum Mythgard do every, every year, they have like a day that's just like a marathon from, I don't know, whenever in the morning... Corey Olson wakes up and turns his computer on till till like you know past midnight sometime when they've they've um, run through half of the Lord of the Rings online world as a chicken or whatever whatever they do you know like funny stuff like that so yeah yeah that would be I think that would be a cool goal to 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 work towards at some point yeah totally. yeah and I I yeah and I just I love the idea of doing new anomalous things in the world to produce new information and so well let's jump in so. Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. A couple things just about the intro to this, the name. The name Nausicaa, uh, which you notice has a diiresis over the second A, which means that the name should be pronounced Nausicaa, but is not, of course, yeah. honored. Um, that is what that diiresis means. That is a diacritical mark that means that the vowel sounds are separate. And so the listeners, if they hear that, they now know a little more than they used to. Second thing is that Nausicaa is a character from Homer's Odyssey. And we mentioned this in our last side quest conversation. Basically what she's a character of is she is a character of the, the maiden feminine just before or just after she has uh, started menstruating and is about to begin and is embarking on the journey of being a woman and is about to leave the home to become a wife. So in some ways, Nausicaa, when she encounters Odysseus, as a figure of the young virginal maiden is very similar to Persephone and the myth of the rape of Persephone, which scholars like Carl Carini believe was the, the myth that was told to girls as an initiation ritual into um, womanhood, which makes sense because it's a rape, right? It's an abduction. It's something that just happens. It's not something that you do, much like the onset of menstruation. Nature chooses, not you unlike, say, a male initiation ritual where you're locked in a cave and symbolically buried or drowned and have to encounter fear and uh, potentially humiliation and then come out in a slightly more active, though also very much passive way. And so we see here in this story, like with so many Miyazaki stories, our protagonist is, of course, a young lady. And something just interesting about that is two things. One is that the very beginning of the movie starts with the tapestry being shown to us with mythological sort of primitivist figures. And we see, we, see the histor- we see the history of this world. There were five giants, much like the four major plagues, like war, famine, disease, and death, that went through and uh, uh, blew up the world, essentially a thousand years ago. Yeah, right, right. Uh, so like the Tower of Babel sort of myth. And then ever since then, there have been these terrible bugs and this terrible poison throughout the world. And in this tapestry, we see that there will be the coming of a winged divine figure with golden hair and a golden field. 
And at first, we, we, <laughs> what's interesting, this sort of sets off Hayao Miyazaki's project in two ways. Is it's sort of like the coming of the Logos will establish harmony between chaos and, and uh, order, which, wow. which is a major theme in this text. How do you deal with the impending chaos, which seems like it's going to certainly destroy us? Well, we should destroy it, but that just results in the chaos fighting back. And the chaos is very strong in this case, as manifested through the great god bugs, the ohms that have sitar played when they, when they, they show up. It's a funny sound. And so they're very holy. And they, yeah, I mean, their names are ohms. But the second thing is this sort of sets out the project of Hayao Miyazaki himself, that he must have seen himself in a time of chaos where uh, people did not understand the proper relation between order and chaos, where people were perhaps repressing their inner natures or, or, or um, not appropriately establishing uh, the relationship between the individual and society. And, and so perhaps he sees himself also as a figure of, of flight, of the imagination as an artist, bringing a sort of harmony to the yeah. world. And, and, and just the third thing to add there is, I think it's funny that, and you were mentioning this earlier, that it's a girl, not a boy. And that's actually something that messes up the interpretation, even though Nausicaa can fly during on her, on either a gunship or on her winged board, like a surfboard right. on the wind. Uh, nobody recognizes her as the potential um, figure of fate because she's a girl. And so it's almost as if Hayao Miyazaki is, is sort of saying with his entire career, often having female protagonists, almost always, except for in his last work, The Wind Rises. Um, it, it's, it's, if he say, he's saying the answer is right before our eyes, but we do not see it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's, I think it's really cool how the, the, the film does open with that, that kind of historical background and it's all through, through pictures and maybe a little narration, but but yeah, you you get the sense of the uh, the gravity of this story, the epic kind of um, post-apocalyptic uh, uh, feel of it, and the first you know scenes that you get are are of Nausicaa on her um, glider thingy on the these dunes, you know, flying around. Um, it's it's very like Star Wars, you know. It's like on that yes. kind of scale. It's just fantastic, uh, and I, I I think I'm vaguely suspecting that i saw this movie at some point as a kid or something something about it at least uh really like when i when i watch it i i feel like i have these uh memories of seeing it before i really knew what it was about like maybe we borrowed it from a blockbuster or something but um but there's something like really uh uh powerful about those scenes of of flying over the um the sands that uh that just uh, give you this like very strong impression again it's below the level of articulation right like mm. you don't know the whole story of the war and the prophecy and this and that but you can really um, feel pretty pretty deeply what 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 a cool thing it would be to um, to, to zip along and to explore this uh, this wasteland and to have that kind of um, just uh, freedom but also uh, skill and 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 confidence um so she she's establishes like right away as this as this awesome character juxtaposed against that epic background um uh, it's just like such a great um opening opening sequence and the part that i thought was really neat this time watching i noticed that what she does is find the um the eye casing 
of the um the, the and it's been it's been um shed recently and so it's fresh and so she's like so it's she finds it so wonderful and um and so as a kid watching this like maybe you're afraid of this giant thing but it's harmless right it's it's just yes. the skin and even more than that it's wonderful because she can she can rest under the eye shell and she literally sees through the eye of the ohm yes. as this um like uh pollen um poison stuff falls but because it can't harm her she can recognize how beautiful it is and because it can't harm us you know in turn we're seeing through mm. the eyes of this film you know just like you said that thing that's right there that you, you don't normally see you know it puts it it puts it in perspective it's like such an interesting way uh, of grappling with the fallout of war of pollution of of uh societal or cultural decay and just like reestablishing well, how do you solve that? You look through the eyes of the of the destructive force and you see the world like for what it is, for this beautiful and wonderful and strange place. It, right. It's, like, there's so right. much just in that opening sequence. Yeah, and uh, I, yeah, so just two things that, that makes me want to talk about quite a bit is flight in this, this movie and flight in general in Hayao Miyazaki and in particular the difference between sort of magical flight and technological flight. flight which we've seen uh, in the castle in the sky, the ability to fly with the sort of Laputa stone uh, as well as having airships here. We have like this sort of air glider as opposed to the battleships of Pegite and um, whatever the other place is called, which I'm forgetting the Ptolemyans. Yes, of course. Um, and, and what a flight of the imagination might actually be, but also, yeah, I, I, I think I have essentially the exact same thought you had about when, Nausicaa encounters the ohm shell. So for one, we see that these creatures like snakes shed. And so they leave vestiges of the past. And the ohm are, by most people's account in the world in which Nausicaa lives, the great enemies. They are the super, they are the tanks or the brigadiers uh, or the big bombers of the bugs. They, uh, they are completely de-individuated and will work as a giant mass in order to destroy humans. And they've done this multiple times. And in fact, we learned from Yo Lord Yuba, the Gandalf wizard figure of the self and hermetic figure, who's the ultimate swordsman, has two swords, the will and the intellect, and has a destiny to seek like Harry Potter for his entire life that's both practical and mythological, that he says his goal is to destroy the poisonous forest. And Obaba, not Yubaba this time around, says, well, actually your goal is to fulfill this prophecy. And he says, ah, that's all myths and nonsense. And it's like, well, actually to live the correct life is to live, or the heroic life is to live a mythological life, even though it's a deeply practical life. But the fact that yeah. Nausicaa puts herself underneath this eye case of the ohm shows a few things to me. The first thing is that which can destroy you can also protect you. So mm -hmm. sort of the idea behind the nascent hero uh, fighting the dragon and then taking a piece of the hide from the dragon to create a shield so that they're then impervious to fire. And so, yeah. and so Nausicaa turns something that was once destructive into something protective. And how she makes it protective is, as you said, she utilizes the eye in the same way that the Ohm would have used, utilized the eye casing, right? As a, yeah. a protection through which she can see clearly. And uh, the Ohm's eyes are actually very particularly interesting, right? they're very expressive they're either red for rage or they're blue for being placid and so mm -hmm. one of her abilities seems to be which is perhaps linked to the ability that she can fly and chooses to face the unknown herself is 
that we find out that she actually, through one of her dream sequences, dur during a golden tentacled, ohm-induced, uh, psilocybin-like uh, fantasy <laughs> that she has, is, uh, is uh, that she once raised a small arm. She tried to protect it, but it was taken away from her by these humans, suggesting that kind of the power to her and perhaps the power of a hero is the ability to take on the perspective of the enemy and see that the true enemy is not who you project the image of the enemy on, but the evil within yourself, much as we were talking about in Harry Potter in our conversation about 30 minutes ago. It's almost like it's true. It keeps going up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the fact that she, um, that she then, yeah, rescues Lord Yuba, uh, I find really, so yes. this is another thing. I know. So once I saw, oh, she's looking through the eye. Okay, that's pretty like right over, uh, hitting you over the head with it. But then yes. like very briefly, you notice she hops up and looks out through the eye of the giant like robot thing. Yes, that is, the giant, um, giant. So she sees, she sees from the perspective, not only of the, uh, the so-called enemy, but ah. also from the, the actual, you know, the most, you know, destructive things the humans did, which woke the ohm and sort of caused them to to rampage. It turns out was that the humans had built or or somehow birthed these giant destructive robots, right? That burned down yes. um, their path. So then the Earth, you know, retaliates with something even more destructive to wipe out. Um, Very like Final the, Fantasy VII and the coming of the weapons. <laughs> totally, totally. And so she looks through the eye of the giant robot, and yet is not. Um, is not tainted by by that mm. um, sort of right. She can she can overcome that, and she does it through her selflessness. She she rescues Lord Yuba by by leading the Ohm away, um, and she's rewarded with this kind of um, sprite uh, being right. The um, yeah. the little fox squirrel yeah. guy. Yes, yes, uh, and and it's and like a, you know fox and squirrel scavengers, right? A squirrel is a scavenger, so it's a fox, and it's also clever. So she's that's another indication of her talent. Yeah, and understanding and, and of her like, own animal nature. It's this this moment where she allows the fox squirrel, just like the ohm, she allows yeah. it to be afraid mm. and to to bite her, right? And she doesn't yes. uh, flinch from it because she knows that it's more scared than she is, and she knows that the power in her, um, although perhaps not articulating it this way, is sufficient to to embrace and um, turn to good what what appears to be evil. Uh, it's and that's it's excellent. And that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, well, I was just going to say that's excellent because that's, that's a theme that totally recurs multiple times because I wanted to compare Nausicaa then to the two other princesses we see. We see Lestelle, whose name seems to be the star, who dies very, very soon, who was taken hostage on um, a Ptolemaikian ship, which also the one remaining supergiant, which is now in its nascent form and needs to be redeveloped, is carried on. Well, she dies in front of Nausicaa. Nausicaa then meets the Ptolemaikian prince princess who is uh who is voiced by uma thurman um oh, but could have been kate kate blanchett who who when they find themselves stuck in the poisonous forest outside the known territory it is fear which that which directs the tolmekian um the tolmekian princess's actions and we learned that why she's so afraid of these bugs and hates them so much is because they've taken something from her, at least her arm and possibly more of her, which she, she tells us Riley, her husband will understand uh, or, or will, will have to deal with. But um, it's interesting because what uh, Nausicaa sees driving the negative behavior in this animal, which then disappears 
because of how she treats it by accepting the fact that it's afraid and showing that she's not something that needs to be feared. Well, she also trains this human in the same way, this princess who was leading a warlike people, a warlike people who had the wrong idea about how to defeat the bugs because she now feared the bugs because they took something from her, which made her both fear and hate them. And so what Nausicaa shows in sort of identifying that fear and this opposing princess and by embodying sort of a different ideal and different way of looking at things, another perspective is that she, she allows this princess who's causing more problems than she's solving, though she self-righteously thinks she's solving them because of her power and her warlike efforts. Well, she starts to have a positive impact on her to yeah. the point where eventually this princess from this, these Tolmikians starts to become more like Nausicaa because she's been sort of accepted uh, or, or because she's been understood as acting out of fear. And Nausicaa shows her that there is another way. Um, she leads She leads the Tolmachian princess in the same way that the, the uh, savior figure leads everybody in the tapestry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the princess, the Tolmachian princess is, uh, is like very, you know, golden and very technological and- Ah, um, uh, yes, yes. Uh, so it's very Athena-like. She's like a distorted version, yeah, of of the yes. of the Messiah figure there, and and the other mm. princess, the other princess too is a kind of Messiah because she she sees her, you know, going down with the ship, and she rescues her from the flames, and sees mm. that she's too far gone, right? Um, but yes. but in some sense, she can she can empathize with with her and her suffering um, in a in a real deep way, and then she does kind of reappear later in in the sense that Nausicaa. Yes. Like her when embodies her when when asbel the the prince uh of pejite uh comes flying in and is ready to blow blow up the uh the airship right um she nausicaa makes the same gesture um and and he sees his sister and her right the princess and there's died. a second time too right where when they're chasing down the elm that's being carried by the the small carrier ship that looks like the ship that carried hercules over his night sea journey uh she she again she she's coming in on her her glider and she she's sacrificing herself she has her arms out like she's not going to fight and yep. the gunner says lestelle and yeah. so it you know interestingly enough it reminds me of the animorph series where uh did you did you read that series read at all growing up yeah yeah a little bit well just in the very first one when one of the morphine creatures called an andalite that fights against the parasitic yurks shows up on the the earth what it does is it, like a star from the sky, falls, having sacrificed itself in a war against a warlike people. Um, it dies and it gives the gift of its ability to transform yeah. to, to the young people. And so it's almost like what these characters who sacrifice themselves do is they, they transform the person whose presence they are in, who understands that they have just sacrificed themselves for something greater than them. It's as if what they show is the human ability to sacrifice for the good or for a, an aim, which is higher than a personal aim. And mm -hmm. that there's an aim beyond like say, simply fear or force, but that there's actual good that is worth dying for. And that there's like a succession of martyrs throughout both fiction and history that um, since we're so highly imitable seem to be able to pass on this, this ultimate ideal to each other that can then be embodied by differing humans yeah. but because it's embodied it can continue to be imitated which i think is probably the original idea be behind 
like apostolic succession, right? That the spirit is what's supposed to be shared between uh-huh. each generation, not simply blood, um, which I think, and not to make the longest point ever, is also tied to the idea that so much of this, this, um, this story takes place in the wind, on the uh, skies. Right. And that part of Nausicaa as an individual is that she can read the wind very, very well. She's, she's known to be very, very well. And she's very smart too. She can even cultivate the poisonous plants. Yeah. And with a differing source, she shows that the exact same plants are non-poisonous. So it's almost as like as if that's a metaphor for humans, right? Mm. Because the Pegites and the Talmikians hate each other because they're at war with each other. And so they're constantly doing something new to destroy the other one uh, uh, because the other one can't be allowed to survive because they're so destructive. <laughs> so like, I, I think the most ironic instance of that, which we were talking about earlier, was when Pegite destroys its own city in order to eventually destroy the Tolmikians. Yeah, It's like, yeah. you destroyed your, you accomplished what the Tolmikians wanted to accomplish against <laughs> your, yourselves. Absurdum. This is not a victory. Ad absurdum, yeah, of the, of the whole the whole dilemma there. Yeah, yeah, we must stop them because they're evil. And again, that seems to be not realizing the right idea. It's projecting the evil. It's the opposite of the St. George who has the snake wrapped around his legs that he's chopping at. It's like the snake evil is in you. Yeah. That's what you need to purge. You need <laughs> to be able to take the perspective of your enemy and see that you're actually the exact same and projecting the exact same thing onto each other because none of the enemies that these characters identify are actually the real enemy. It's not the giant. It's not each other. It's not the forest. It's the lack of understanding and balance between all of these, which results in the destruction. The destruction between each of them. Mm-hmm. The the way that Nausicaa, yeah, like the dragon image, right? You then you you make the world from the pieces of it, right? And you use yes. parts of it against other bigger dragons. Yeah. So that's like that's like her um, secret room that she she mentions to Yuba in the ah, beginning. Yes. And and that's where she has her. Um, her plants that she collects from from the poison forest that are growing beautifully and and healthily, and and it's funny because it's almost like the viewer sort of forgets that moment because um, she seems to forget it too. Like we don't uh, we don't see her then like she promises actually show Yuba where this um, secret room is, but instead Yuba finds it because yes. uh, the little little Tito guy, the little fox guy, is uh, scrabbling scrabbling at uh, at the door. Yes. Um, and and Yuba comes looking for um, for Nausicaa and uh, and sees that there's this secret door there and it's like oh yeah so I, I love that the um, the secret of that that process is like is mirrored in the way that it's represented in the film as this kind of this promise right. which is followed up on but then comes true anyway uh, and it's, just it's, articulate that it's like he follows his instincts in order to discover the secret wisdom within himself. Uh-huh. Um, or, or, or so if, if we consider the fox squirrel to be a manifestation of instinct, which I think it clearly is, um, yeah. especially in connection yeah. with, with the Tolmikian princess and the fact that they both embody behavior, which indicates fear um, and that they're acting out of fear. Um, okay, yeah. Excellent, 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 excellent. What was the next thought I, I wanted to ask you about? There was something uh, very, very, very interesting. I'm sorry, just looking at the ohm right now. Pegite, Obaba's figure no i'm sorry I, I, my idea just popped out of my head what <laughs> maybe, maybe 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 you should continue the next question or something uh okay. or, or, or or continue your thought i'm sorry 
no sweat no uh the uh the thing about the the parallel with the other princesses that i was thinking with respect to self-sacrifice on the one hand um is it is the extreme of listel destructiveness on the other the tomikian princess uh seems to embody that and and somewhere in the middle you have nasakea who who has the power to destroy and chooses not to use it but also has this like this intellect right like Again, she she seems to have some incredible um, experimental prowess, and of course, uh, this obvious bravery to do things which are which are dangerous and perhaps deadly. Um, that she can she can figure out the way to um, purify the um, the plants in the poison forest, but then that's not even the end of it because she then discovers later um, through this kind of misadventure with the, yes. the prince, she falls through the false bottom of the forest, the quicksand, it turns out that beneath it, there's this other layer of, of purity and life, just like her secret room, right? But, but created. Ah, and, it's, and it's petrified too. Yeah, yeah. It's so old, right? It's the, it's the, it's the outcome of these processes which seem um, purely destructive and yet prove to be regenerative. Uh, I thought that was fascinating. That's incredible. Yeah, I do want to pick that up. And I remember the point I wanted to mention earlier. And so maybe we can get to it later. It, the idea was that was that each of these royal individuals has lost something or someone or many someone's important to them. And each one of them would have cause to hate and wish to kill the people from the opposing two armies. So it seems as if there were five civilizations, but now Lord Yuba tells us the two have fallen since and the Pejites and the Tolmikians are not doing very well. Now, and so like, say, for instance, as Lord Asdell or like the prince of the Pegites, his sister was captured and then died under Tolmikian control because of bugs. So he could hate all of those. Nausicaa, her father is killed while bedridden by the Tolmikians. And then, of course, um, and I just looked up her name so that I would I would know, know it. Princess Kushana, the Tolmikian yeah. princess, she she hates the bugs. And can rightly hate the bugs because they've they've taken from her, and and also can hate the Pegite prince because he destroys three of her airships and all the all of her men on them. So the cycle of hate, I was mm. going to say, could rightly continue on forever mm. in this uh, in in this text. But part of the idea, and I haven't fully developed this yet, seems to be sort of the idea from the Odyssey, and also what Peterson often says is that victory over others, like Voldemort seems to think or Slytherin um, is not the ultimate goal, but rather harmony peace with all that exists seems, seems to be um, seems yeah. to be what these people best would fight for. If they want their own lives to be good, their people's lives and the lives of those other people as well. Um, all right. And so what, yeah, go, go on. Sorry. Well, the harmony idea, it seems like that's, that's clearly something that nature makes um, makes happen, but over a, a span of time and in ways which humans seem unable to uh, to keep up with, you know, to to understand. Even though it, yeah, yeah, because it takes so long, and so that's interesting. So you were mentioning the fact that the ground layer, which is poison, which is the poison soil, which makes the poison forest, which kills humans, develop is a result of human pollution. And beneath the poison forest is actually a petrified forest that has pure water running through it, which is attempting, which is the Earth's attempt 
to purify itself of this poison. And so a question that arises is, well, what is the true poison in this world? Is it the poison, the physical poison which is on the ground or the source of that poison, the cause of it, which is what? The actions of man. Well, where do the actions of man come from? Well, also the choices and intentions and mind and soul of man, right? The poison that physically manifests as a result of the intentions and the goals and, and the actions of humans. The poison comes from man. And so nature is working to purify that but not necessarily as the humans uh, think to destroy them. Right. It's their inability to understand how nature is going about purifying what they have done that makes them think that nature is antithetical to them and makes them fight back against it, which is for sure going to fail because yeah. those ohm do not lose when they get angry. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, and because they're de-individuated, they, they just do what nature tells them. Yeah, yeah. The, the sense in which um, human consciousness is bound to uh, individual people, right, is like the greatest thing and like the most horrible thing. That seems yes. to be the, the message there, right? Like, if, if we can speak of the earth, like intending to do things or nature trying to do something, then it, it has to be in a way which is quite different from uh, the the sort of consciousness that even Nausicaa has where she like goes and uh, gathers plants and, and like runs this experiment and figures this thing out. Like that's, that's operating in a way which is proper to, to human beings maybe, but so, so small and limited and time bound compared to the way that, that the, the natural world and its processes operate. And the fact that it's a kind of harmony, harmonious like end product that, that you're going for, or maybe not end product, but, harmonious process that you're going for makes it clear that whatever the human consciousness relationship is to this natural world, it's like, it's the most difficult piece to fit in there. It's yes. um, everything else works in a way which seems, as you say, antagonistic, antithetical to the humans. And yet humans are the only ones who can understand what, you know, how the process works and how they can sort of voluntarily then choose to, to submit themselves to it. And so that's like a huge problem. <laughs> right? right, right. And like keeping with the idea of the source. So the source of evil and good seems to be humans, the best and the worst things. What seems to be important for the correct understanding of nature and its relationship to the human is the intention with, the, which, with, with which the humans approach nature. Because, yeah. how, because what develops between Nausicaa and the ohm and nature is trust. And trust that goes deeper than simply language, right? They use their golden truth tentacles to <laughs> to in to encompass her in, in order to sort of feel her character or her essence or her her intention. The idea seems to be that this goes much deeper than what you say. If she's good, they're going to know. And that's good because they can see her past where she protected an ohm and that she wishes to protect and stop killing. She, like them, is a custodian of nature and humans. And so rather than approaching nature with the intent like Voldemort or the dark side in Star Wars to dominate, to defeat, she she approaches it in a way to say sort of my intention is and not even just to say but to embody to be my my intention is to harmonize is to seek for is to seek for peace. Um uh yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
it's, it seems like her um, her intention in the beginning, at least, seems to be like simple curiosity too, though, like to know, mm. understand, to um, to find cool stuff and give it to the kids of the village to play with and run around the streets with, right? And so it's such a it's such a wonderful um, combination of of all. <laughs> right of like seeking the good of others but also of just like following her own interests and curiosity and and that's in in that way at least it seems like humans fit very nicely into the the larger natural process um right and what she can do which the elm do is she can self-sacrifice which she attempts to do multiple times while putting herself in front of the elm and she gets knocked uh, like 50 feet into the air but but also when she sort of like uh, shows herself arms out and unwilling to fight against the the two men who were carrying the baby ohm which is luring the army of ohm towards uh, the valley of the wind um, it's almost as if suggesting that the ultimate power that a human can use is to sacrifice in order to maintain the balance between things and it is to sacrifice himself in order to maintain harmony or to sacrifice herself in this case in order to maintain a harmony, whether between humans and nature or other humans and humans, because if humans are fighting against humans, then obviously that's also a manifestation of humans versus nature, seen as we all have our own human natures. And yeah. So if you're fighting against humans, that's also an aspect of nature, right? It's the violence of nature manifested in a specifically human way. Um, particular, yeah. particular thing that, that I was curious about, though, was like, if that is her memory I didn't know how to take that, whether it was a kind of dream, like a, yes. a kind of um, like symbolic vision that she had of like what the state of things was, or if that was like a concrete memory that she had. Uh, I, yeah, I, I had the same trouble, but I, I think it still means the same thing. But I agree that it could be like a symbolic representation or memory, but I'm not sure which. But but so if it is a if it is a memory, I find it super, super interesting that there is some kind of. Um, thing that emerges uh in the ohm uh biology which which they can uh sort of like tap into and access such memories and those memories can yes. be communicated as images and yes. as experiences, like inner experience can be communicated I, th- I find that to be just remarkable it's it's like you know the image of of the uh the dragon which has the treasure which has the gold right it's like that yes that, that gold is not it's it, it's not a it's not a physical thing. It's the information and the ability to share that story, right? Yes. Like, so I find I find that super interesting. Um, where where that would then lead, like, is is a fascinating thing to try to think about. Then, because because if you can communicate uh, such you know personal or intimate experiences so um, lucidly as that, then uh, it seems like you almost don't need um, articulate speech anymore. Mm. And that's like a, right. a worrying thing to, to me, <laughs> you know, because I, I've, I've put a lot of stock in words. So I don't know. What do you think of that, that, pro- that potential problem or question? Well, let me think about, so we were talking a little earlier and I, I was sharing my theory that I, so let's lay it out. I think you laid it out very nicely. The, the Ohm have these golden tentacles that they can send out that then connect to Nausicaa, which means that they can communicate in sort of a, purely psychological way or a purely truthful way that requires no intermediary like words. And so it, it creates a sort of imaginal landscape with golden fields and, and, and sort of an imaginary 
uh, story plays out. And so what I was saying to you earlier is that I think that the ohm represents with this golden capacity to produce images which are true within the mind of Nausicaa, which she must then interpret with the rational mind, is that the ohm, like the tree or like the snake in traditional mythology, represents something like the nervous system trying to trying to connect with the rational mind, in which we know from recent work that that is actually how the nervous system communicates with the rational mind through emotions and images, because of course it can't speak. Um, and is also uh, generally represented by a universal tree uh, because every human that exists has a nervous system. And therefore that is every human who exists is very much similar to everyone else. But a big difference between humans is how much they listen to their nervous systems, how much they listen to their dreams or their emotions or their imaginations and whether they can interpret what that means or not. Because what Nausicaa seems to be able to convey to the ohm, which the ohm then conveys to her is the appropriate relationship to them is the appropriate relationship to her fellow human, which is the appropriate relationship to the world, which is the greatest power a human has is not to harness the power of nature in sort of a princess Mononoke iron town way yeah. and exploit yeah. it or to take the mana out of it. Like, like Shinra in final fantasy seven, but to live in balance with it as if, there is nothing better in the world than establishing peace yeah. and harmony because in your con in your pursuit of power you will produce the you will produce the conditions necessary to use that power in a violent way and because the only reason that you produce power in the first or excuse me the if you produce power in a way that disrupts the harmony of nature then the power will end up doing let the power will not do the good it is intended to do. If the reason for getting the power is in order to make things better, it will inevitably make things worse. So just to wrap back around, it, it made me think that what these ohms are trying to convey to the humans and which this specific ohm conveys to Nausicaa and several of them in the final time she's touched by the golden tentacle, she's touched multiple times, is um, it is they are sort of speaking the mythological language yeah. of the ultimate goal that a human has to figure out in a particular way within their own life, how to manifest. Uh -huh. And so just as Lord Yuba has a connection between his mythological role and his actual practical application of that role. And he says that is just a myth. So does Nausicaa like every human have to figure out how she fits within the mythological story in order to act in the practically best way in the world. Um, once she understands in a fuller, richer way that harmony between humans and nature is the only way to keep the humans from being destroyed by nature, um, then, she, then she can actually help to prevent that from happening. Whereas everybody else around her who fails to realize this, who are not the saviors because they don't have this realization or this consciousness because they haven't listened to nature or studied it in the same way that she has both external to herself and internal. Um, it gives her the ability to embody an ideal in a specific way that then is mimicked by everybody in her presence, all three, all three different armies and even the ohm itself. Right. It's as if self-realization of your own under of your own nature is the most powerful thing you can possibly do even more powerful than having a super giant with a laser, <laughs> uh, with a laser beam. Mask. Right. 
<laughs> because the giant doesn't get rid of the the ohm. It destroys some of them. But Nausicaa is the one who gets them all to go away without destroying them. Yes. Yes. It's it's fascinating the uh, the kind of um, self uh, understanding that takes place there. Hearing you explain it in that in that way, I think is is helpful because even if there aren't words, um, even if there isn't speech, there's still a kind of interpretation that's going on there. In her communicating that memory, she's in, in a sense like reliving it, bringing it to to consciousness. That seems right, and and then having to act on it and embody something new, um, or embody something in a new way at least. That that all seems spot on, and. The fact that um, that the singing that happens in that scene, like there's this music, that... la, la 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 la, it's all the same it's words this, too, right? It's, it's la la it's la. Wordless and yet not wordless. Yeah, it's it's mm. kind of um on that that liminal place between articulation, yes. uh, and and that which passes the the ability to express. It's also to me something like the um the boundary point or the threshold between um uh her scientific you know intellect mm. and her and her more sort of poetic um memory and imagination wh which i think maps loosely onto like stages of of life development right like children more imaginative yeah. and and adolescents and grown-ups more more kind of analytic and scientific um but have to sort of remain connected to that 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 layer that sub layer of, of myth of poetry. Well, and that's so important. That's so important. Let me just jump in here because that's the keeping alive of the bell from the Polar Express or the becoming childlike again for Paul, because this seems to be the antidote to what to do if your people who have taught you and taught you their specific tradition are wrong-minded uh, or have the wrong sense of, of the, their relationship or their relationships to themselves, to their own history, to the other people who exist and to nature. Uh, because if she is purely indoctrinated by her people, if she does not develop the logos or her relationship to her own inner nature, how is she going to help the people keep from destroying themselves? Yeah. She can't. And remember the image. If we just think about the, the original memory or, or, or dreamscape that she shares with the Ohm, it's her trying to protect an Ohm underneath a tree, <laughs> of course, symbol of the nervous system and then what is it that that's the most striking image in that entire scene it's the hands like from labyrinth all these grabbing hands trying to grab the ohm and so the, i think that's so great because if you look at pictures of a motor homunculus or sensory homunculus how humans according to um uh according to what we use mental resources to represent and use in our bodies our faces and our hands are obviously the biggest because we use them for everything predominantly communication but what is a representation of a bunch of hands without eyes the opposite of like a an ohm's shell with so many eyes what's well, doing without understanding right yeah. well that's the vast majority of people who don't understand what they're doing is wrong and what is nausicaa left with at the end of that dream her feeling her feeling is real yeah. she knows that what happened was not right yeah. it was wrong and it hurt her and she cried. And so what is she left with and what does she convey to the ohm and thus to her own nature? That she has the correct sense of fairness, that she has the, great, the right sense of morality and that that was not learned from other people. That in fact, all the people around her are wrong or, or, or do not understand what they do. They know not what they do. 
as it were. And so where does she find this sense of rightness? Well, not in society, not in anybody else, but where? In herself. Yeah. And it's as if she can convey that to the Ohm because the Ohm are potentially a representation of that which is within her anyway, insofar as external nature reflects internal nature, which obviously it does um, because those are just abstractions of nature. Um, <laughs> but that, but that it's almost like saying that in a human, because, and this is something we actually know now because of the work of Jacques Pinksepp, we actually have fairness circuits just like rats do. Your sense of fairness does not come from philosophy or from your society and how they act, but from your biology. It's so deeply rooted into you that the only place you can find out what is fair is by looking within to your own emotions and how you feel as well. Obviously, this uh, you can be wrong about things and you can you can misinterpret things and that's very difficult in the you know the the path the path to wisdom is the path of the fool as it were you have to make many errors in order to become wise but it's it seems to be showing that to be the savior of a people you cannot simply take on all the opinions and actions of the people people and assume that's right but you have to see whether that accords with your own nature with your own feeling does this feel right right uh, i mean even the figure that transcends this is the figure of authority, the king and her father, ultimate authority yeah. in a way. And she even stands yeah. up to, I think it's interesting how she stands up to Obaba after the king's killed. And mm. Obaba's like trying to stir up the people to revolt and they'll all they'll all be sort of massacred, oh. but like yes. her to the to be the right thing to do because the trees are dying anyway, you know, this and that. But but mm. Nausicaa stands up to her too. And I think, yeah, that seems right that in some sense Obaba's got like a lot of the good things of the tradition, she's she's got the um, the stories and she knows about the prophecy and about what Lord Yuba's up to, um, but she doesn't have the whole picture either, right? She's sort of trapped mm. in, within her um, her older understanding as well. Um, yes, that kind of prejudice which says, okay, that that figure must be male. That's the same sort of prejudice. Mm -hmm. that says, okay, our king is dead. We must all now die, you know, bravely and valiantly. Right. Yeah. Right, right, because that does seem like a clear thing to do, that once the, the king has died, so do the people die. But that ref, that doesn't reflect the second half of the mythology. And as we know from the, the Egyptian mythology, what happens when Osiris dies? Well, the, new, the son of Osiris, which in this case would be the daughter, goes down to the underworld to restore him by taking on his vestments, by becoming a leader who is no longer blind, not just hands, but a leader who can see, who might be represented as having a golden crown or a golden halo indicating golden perspective. And in this case, we'll actually be on a golden field, which is often the figure of the Elysian fields or of heaven or of the person who is bringing the ideal future to replace the unbearable present. Yeah. And um, so you're totally right. And just to connect that back to Hayao Miyazaki's ideas that perhaps part, part of what he's doing artistically through manifesting his own nervous system, the collective unconscious, is showing the the gifts that the logos of women in this generation will um, will contribute to um, to the to the culture at large right. in in the entire world because he's of course Japanese though we're Westerners so this is a worldwide influence yeah yeah um, totally to um, that, that yeah to take off that old traditional uh, sort of mandate that says okay only only males can be heroes. Once you once you remove that, then you sort of open up this huge, un, untapped resource of of potential and, yeah. in your society and your culture. And how, 
And how she does this is she does do a couple things that are sort of prototypically male in terms of like flying and being an active hero. But she also cultivates her relationship to nature, which I think is the most important aspect here, almost indicating that the path of like, say, the feminine hero might might involve some degree of self-discovery of her relationship to her own nature as well, that almost, almost as if the path of the hero for both male and female is to discover their inner nature and therefore their part in the world in which they play, but that those paths, those symbolically equivalent, might be practically different, might manifest themselves in a different way. In fact, you might find that, that what exists, that there is something distinct within women from men, though of course they're mostly the same because of course we're all the same species, that there, there's something nourishing or cultivating or harmonizing in the abilities uh, of the feminine nature that perhaps that's, that's even part of, hmm. I do think the harmony bit is correct. Just if you think of the idea of Kali as both the giver of life and destroyer from the Hindu religion, that that which is feminine is that which gives life, but also takes it away. It's, it's not only the mother, but also the plague or the devouring bear <laughs> or, or, or Om in this case, but that it's almost as if what Hayao is saying is that in order in this time of great change, when women are now getting access to the logos or to professions in which they, they would have never had an opportunity to, in a time when they have the ability to contribute to culture in a way that they've never been able to, the, the most appropriate thing for them to do in order to produce, in order to produce the best possible thing or harmony would be to first understand their own individual or their, their own feminine natures or their own natures. Um, rather than simply attempting to mimic the nature of someone who has been traditionally successful, like say a male or a male lifestyle or male dress or male practices, um, that perhaps there's something much deeper that's, that's far more their own. that's potentially world saving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, Uh, the, the instinct that she has to, to save the, the, the baby Ohm in that memory of hers, right? That's this, that's this thing that, can't really be accounted for by any outside influence really um, except right. for her own sort of inborn sense of of the value of life or of you know fair play or whatever uh, and and that's something that yeah does strike me as sort of particularly um, feminine in some senses like to, to protect and and try to uh, save this little creature you know as a kid like I would kill little worms and caterpillars and stuff like that yes that's what I yes so would i so and that's i would pull the claws off of little crabs yeah, yeah. i was terrible <laughs> so i still feel bad so yeah we're, not, we're yeah. not we're not quite made of the right stuff to to deal with a, a, a situation where um there's this kind of tipping point from from destructive uh patterns of behavior to to more like salvific or or whatever you want to call it um whatever it is that she seems to embody it it's it's in her and it's um it's deeply in there and and can be sort of triggered and and let out by by these kind of um experiences but can't be fully accounted for by by something outside of herself that's you know and just to make it i'm going to make this as broad as possible we'll see if it makes any sense so i've recently been reading a book that you i know you've read and uh, and re- written a blog post on it. Perhaps we'll have a conversation about it soon. The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion by Jonathan Haidt. Oh, yeah. And so something 
very interesting about males, especially during adolescence, is they start to produce more testosterone than females. It's also around the time of adolescence that women, because of their sexual vulnerability, become more anxious for the rest of their lives, um, as uh, because of course they're more vu sexually vulnerable for the rest of their lives until menopause. And also where men and women's levels of aggression change. Mm -hmm. um, in the population, 60% of men are more uh, disagreeable or aggressive than women are. And so that's almost even, but at the ends of, the, at the ends of that bell curve would be where all the action happens. And so those who are more disagreeable, I would say, produce more testosterone than those who are agreeable, which means that they're more likely to fight. And often they end up, uh, more people end up in prison who are disagreeable. The most disagreeable people do. I suggest that that might be sort of how you might view part of history, testosterone, logos, fighting against each other. But what this sort of shows is that, well, where I, I see the biological or the neurobiological sort of root of agreeableness is in the production of a neurotransmitter called oxytocin, which is called the hugging or the kissing hormone. It makes you feel feelings of, of affection and it makes you want to encourage uh, young people and protect them and nurture them. It, it's actually produced due to physical contact and new fathers produce it as they start to produce less testosterone. And it, its original evolutionary function seems to have been to prepare a woman and her nervous system to take care of a small child. So you have to become much less aggressive. Uh -huh. And so why I'm giving you this neurobiology is that I think part of what the nervous system in Hayao Miyazaki and in this movie is trying to indicate is that perhaps we're not supposed to replace men or destroy those who harness more testosterone, but to produce more oxytocin or more agreeableness just because how Jonathan Haidt describes the function of oxytocin now um, is not simply to make you more docile, but to produce more trust between members of a group. And if you have more trust between members of a group, and this is something in every epic, which is now borne out by rigorous science, you have a more cohesive group. The more cohesive the group is, the better it fares in intergroup conflict. Mm -hmm. And so part of what I think the secret in here is, is that to feminize the world a little bit or to accept the place of oxytocin would create greater trust and therefore strength between us as a people, even more than simply pursuing pure strength in the form of competitive competition um, um, promoted by testosterone would. That if we take a more balanced view of that which is actually feminine and that which is actually masculine, we can potentially produce... Um, or become cognizant enough to, to use both of those uh, aspects of nature and neurotransmitters in order to produce a more harmonious and therefore more effective and stable group. Yeah, as, I think that's interesting as a kind of upshot of the, the mythological portrayal of the stuff to, to then go and find um, scientific evidence or um, sort of like other biological manifestations of of essentially the same thing, right? That that's, that's yes. fascinating, and that's again like something that's kind of new under the sun here, like to have the the technology and the methods available to actually test this kind of stuff and and put a um, put an interpretive, conceptual, scientific framework around it, rather than 
only a, a kind of story, a narrative. Um, well, it makes sense because even though science is a more articulated version of myth, we still use the same structure of consciousness to represent it, right? So it's, it's almost as if the figures, or even though that which is within science is so highly technical compared to what is the relatively primitive language, though deeply, infinitely meaningful language of epic or myth, um, since we bring the same mental apparatus to bear on the interpretation of it, it would make sense that our myths, which seek to explain ourselves and our relation within the world, would have a profound connection to science mm -hmm. as well, which has also been produced from us in order to teach us about the world. Though, of course, Peterson says, myths teach us how to act in the world. Mm -hmm. Science teaches us what's in the world, but we are actors within the world using science in order to do what? Um, <laughs> Um, in order to affect how we behave in the world or, or, or to change the world in some respects. So it, it just makes sense to me that, is, that as these are two endeavors of human consciousness, that there would be consilience between them, as E.O. Wilson says, that, that it shouldn't surprise us to find connections, that it might be surprising to us because we haven't seen them before, but that it should also be no surprise because, of course, since these are manifestations of human wisdom, they're, they're probably differing ways of looking or different levels of analysis of potentially similar phenomena. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think the, um, the kind of pursuit uh, then that you see um, of, of Lord Yuba, right? The, the master swordsman, mm -hmm. the, uh, the sort of father figure or, or like you said, mercurial figure. Um, so that that's that sort of pursuit and then um, Nausicaa's, uh, which actually ends up embodying the myth that he apparently is sort of searching for all along. Um, mm. Those two things in the in the film, those two characters are, are so tightly knit together, right? Like they yes. have deep understanding. And I, and I think that's a beautiful sort of like image in a sense of, of what you're talking about. The, the two um, approaches are, are both they're both after the same thing ultimately, and they both um, work yes. hand in hand. Like he, he rescues her in her moment of greatest crisis, just as she does um, for him in that early moment in the film. Um, That's so good. And just to support exactly what you're saying in the Odyssey, the two figures that help Odysseus, mm -hmm. the two figures of his consciousness that help him so much, or the two figures of the, the dominance of the unconscious are Hermes, the trickster, hermetic figure of, of, a divine inspiration and also Athena yeah. wisdom, a male and a female figure. And here's something even better. Scholars suggest that the original, that originally the God that would have helped Odysseus would have been a trickster sort of God that fools people that then developed later into a wisdom sort of God like Athena. And that in fact, Odysseus was probably a figure originally of the trickster who later became a figure of the hero because the figure of the hero transitioned from a physical testosterone-based uh, figure like Ajax or, or, or Achilleus or Heracles, Hercules, to a, a, a more, a, not a wiser, but a more cunning, mm -hmm. uh, a more many-sided, a more logos-using sort of character. And so the relationship between Lord Yuba as sort of a hermetic figure and Nausicaa is sort of an Athena-like figure. And the fact that he's older than she is and she's younger, she's the newer generation, mm. also shows that sort of transformation 
of the trickster figure into the figure of wisdom because the trickster is a step along the way or a step along the path of the development of wisdom. And if Nausicaa is a figure of wisdom, then she is not simply the character who is existing within that world at that time, but is rather the embodiment of the ultimate quality of humans, which is wisdom or the capacity to bring harmony to yourself, your people, and to your people and nature. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So she like flies around, whereas he just rides chocobos on the, on the, on the sand. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was so interesting that he had two chocobos. I, I set that to myself as a riddle in the beginning. And I, I, I wanted to maybe test you on that, but I, I don't also want to put you on the spot like that because I had some time to think about it. But the fact that he carries two around at first and he's, he's on one immediately suggested to me that either A, somebody had been with him who died, <laughs> or B, he was seeking to save somebody or carry something back with him that one was supposed to be a carrier well isn't it at the end uh, at the end in the end isn't he uh running along uh with the with the prince with prince asbel on the other yeah. chocobo? and and see that's yeah. the, that's even better because hermes is known to be a psychopomp one who takes people between realms the living and the dead and so where what does this guy do what does lord yuba do well he goes between the poison forest and or chaos and the known world or known territory of culture and so why does he have a second chocobo is he takes people from the known to the unknown to turn the unknown into known for them. Yeah. And so who does he take in here next? He takes the, the, the Pedite prince in order to initiate him now into the mysteries yeah. of the, the unknown, um, and with, which I think is incredible. And, but also what's incredible about that is that his initiation is limited the ultimate initiation does not come from one person guiding you or even a God guiding you, but you guiding yourself mm. because what doesn't, well, because Nausicaa has to understand the meaning of the memory or the dream that the omen induce mm. to her. She has to see something in herself. She has to be led to it herself. Um, and so that sem- seems to still indicate to me that the Pedrite Prince, he's got like, he, like his people who destroyed themselves have a way to go. It's almost as if, the Valley of the Wind is not a real place, but more like an ideal place that the Pegites and the Tolmikians are fighting in order to develop, in which in fighting each other, they almost destroy the ideal paradise because they almost destroy themselves and therefore there would be no, nobody to embody it. Mm-hmm. But in coming to peace and seeing Nausicaa, seeing this divine feminine figure, they can start to restore their idea of what a heaven-like place, a Valley of the Wind would be. Um, and I think that's actually evidenced by the fact that when uh, the ultimate battle is about to happen, what happens? The wind stops. Mm. It's like the thinking is gone. Right. The logos has disappeared. Um, and it's like heaven is going to disappear with the disappearance of humans when they destroy themselves. Um, yeah. With nobody to embody ideals, the ideals will become like those trees beneath uh, the poison forest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Petrified. Right. And, and covered over and lost to, to consciousness or to um, the, the possibility of being discovered. Yeah. Right. It's right. Without a discoverer. It's a, it's yeah. a really, uh, it's a really optimistic movie. Like the way that it, um, that it ends is on such a, such an uplifting and sort of miraculous note actually. Mm. Um, that yeah, I find it I find it interesting that to think about this as the uh, as the starting point of um, 
Miyazaki's uh, kind of career at 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 uh, like prior to the formation of the studio um, around it. Um, because yeah, I think you can see an awful lot of of the the different motifs that he comes back to time and again are there in the film. And I, I'm wondering now about the kind of um, trajectory, and maybe we can sort of talk about this next time if uh, it is the last one. Like, how how does the how does the um, the attitude towards this uh, this kind of these similar problems that keep coming back in these uh, sort of similar so- solutions to them that come back time and again. Does that same optimism recur as he goes through his career? Does he become um, more jaded? Does he shift um, his thinking on on any key points, or is it pretty pretty consistent the way along? Uh, I would be interested in trying to get some uh, some kind of handle. Well, that's an excellent question. Cool. I especially because you know in the next work we're going to we're going to watch of course the word wind reoccurs mm, right. and it, in fact a big part of it will be um sort of as a self-reflective that um even with the greatest ideals the world corrupts you to some degree or you become corrupted to some degree and then have to come back out from that um and i think that'll that might be part of the theme and maybe we'll be able to see that but something just to connect to that to maybe set the groundwork the foundation the source for next time is that at the very end of this story, a non-poisonous tree appears. Oh, yeah. And so that's almost as if that's almost indicating the coming of a non-poisonous artist into the world, right? Totally. That this world is full of miasma and chaos and terror and there are ample causes for violence and revenge and that many things are terrible, hmm. but that amidst all of that, one small non-poisonous thing, like one small thought or one small person, one small act or one small artist might have a salubrious or salutary effect yeah. on the world around it. And so if, if at the end of this first work, Hayao Miyazaki has become a great artist or an artist at some level and wishes to have a purifying effect on the world or a harmonizing effect on the world, that would be something I would definitely look for in the next movie we're going to watch, his final movie. Does, does he... In the, in the narrative of the movie, if the protagonist is him, who will actually create airplanes, war planes, which will be very interesting, does he manage to, main, to have a salubrious or salutary effect? Does he remain an uncontaminated tree? Or does the contamination of the world, of the soil, catch him? Cool. Um, and so if, if an artist's work is self-reflective in that way, Perhaps we'll see whether he, he keeps that pure intention and manages to go through his career in that way. Um, that'd be really interesting to see. Right on. Right on. Yeah. Well, Wes, and I, I think I undersold you today. Did you also put out a bookworm games? Did you also record that today? I started to record that and I realized that I have to add some stuff to it. Um, but yeah, more or less uh, got that recorded today. Um, although I wrote it mostly yesterday. Well, that's super impressive. So you've taught a class on The Hobbit. You've done a bookworm games on Earthbound. You've done a conversation on Harry Potter. And now you've done a conversation on Nausicaa. What a magical day. That's a good day. Yeah, not too bad. Well, now, what are, you, what are you doing with the rest of it? Got, are adding more to that podcast? Yeah, I got to try to finish that up. I got to prepare a little bit for tomorrow's uh, Hobbit camp and uh, maybe 
this uh this this story that I've been working on off and on because you know this is NaNoWriMo they do a July thing and so someone at Signum wanted to do that so I was like yeah I'll try to do that but I've I really fall off the fallen off the wagon on that since Hobbit Camp started so maybe I'll try to write a little more of that story. What what is NaNoWriMo? Is that a national writing something month? It's uh it's it's the not it theoretically you write a novel in a month. Uh, national novel. Oh, okay. It's I've never actually really accomplished it, but it's a good way to kind of get motivated to to work on yeah. on writing and creative writing is a really hard thing to do for me, so I need a lot of kind of impetus to to get going on it. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, we all do. And I, I was actually thinking recently that, that would be an interesting thing for us to do either via re writing or podcasting where we just give ourselves either a topic or a challenge or a situation which we then have to write a story about. So like it could be like red or or it could be uh, somebody being pushed to his limit or something like that. Something very simple where because we have that problem and that theme, we can then manifest a story around it start start with the end and see what we produce sure yeah there's there's tons of great like workshop materials and stuff and um it would be cool to to try to add to that yeah absolutely all right well mr west chance i would say enjoy your rest but enjoy your continued work today <laughs> you too. and uh apparent apparently we could all work a lot harder uh, and you're showing us maybe i've got i've got more to do today now too <laughs> You've got Oscar back on tomorrow, right? That's true. Nice. Yes, I've got the Great Men podcast happening again tomorrow. We're talking about Cyrus. And fun, funny enough, I, I already asked Oscar whether we can talk about connections between Harry Potter and Cyrus because they both are, they both have uh, endangered births, okay. you might say. Cool. Yeah, so they're similar figures in some ways, different in others. All right. Well, thanks again. Uh, and thank you. Thank you. Until next time. All right.